The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. 
We love to study the Bible. We think that is the best way to hear from God. And so what we do is we go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. And just recently, we've started the book of Exodus. So if you're just joining us, it's a great time. Um, the book of Exodus is a story of God's plan of redemption and how he's freed his people from slavery and brought them into freedom. And today we'll be in chapter 3. So if you want to turn your Bibles there, um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible at your feet. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you. We want you to study it, look at it, read it. Um, and if you need help finding where we're going to be in the Bible, it's towards the front. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. I'm right there in chapter 3, or if you want to download an app on your phone, it'll flip there for you, which is pretty sweet. Um, and in today's passage, like I said, we've got a lot to see. There's, there's a lot going on here, but there are two, two big picture things that I want us to see this morning as, we, um, as the, the story of Exodus unfolds. The first thing is, is God is going to show us who he is. God's going to reveal himself to Moses. And the second thing that God is going to do is he's going to show his plan for his people. So that's kind of where we're going. And as we dig into these things, what I hope you see that there are implications for us today as we learn about those two big things. Because of who God is who he is and he's doing what he's doing, our lives, just like Moses' life, will never be the same when we encounter God. So here we go. Verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, the story picks off right where we left off last week. Moses is out in the middle of nowhere. He's shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. And this has been quite the transition for Moses. The first 40 years of his life, Moses had lived in Pharaoh's house, the richest, most powerful house in the world. And now he's living with his in-laws, working for his in-laws, this life of simplicity. And he's lived like this for 40 years at this point. For 40 years, he's been shepherding his father's lost sheep, living in their little hut or whatever. And this is what he's been doing. And, and as I was reading this week, I, I couldn't help but think, man, 40 years of this, isn't, isn't this a waste of time? I couldn't, couldn't have God called Moses sooner or, or started delivering his people earlier than this. And, and what I came to realize that, that God was really doing a good work in Moses' heart in this season of in-between, in the season of being between um, living as Egyptian royalty and the season of living as the leader of God's people. This season of in-between for Moses was not wasted time. And I think there's a lesson here for us to keep in mind when we are in a season of in-between. And what I mean by that is when we're in a season of waiting or longing for something, something typically big to change in our lives. Now, I, I'm personally, I'm kind of like on the verge of coming out of a season of in-between. Um, I don't know, it's probably six, seven years ago when I was in college, I've, I felt God calling me into ministry. I felt that God had gifted me to be serving some sort of pastoral role. And uh, it didn't just happen overnight. It didn't, it didn't just come about the next day. God led me on a season of in-between, a season that included selling TVs and then moving further away from home, and then I sold cars for a while, and then I had to raise money so I could come on staff or come and do an internship with a church, and then I came on staff at the church, and I had two years of kind of doing a position that I was happy to do, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do, and then finally God kind of opened up this, this opportunity to plant a church in Moline, and I was like, yes. Right? And in a sense, it still hasn't 
materialize. We still need to plant a church. There's still, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but it's, it's kind of, it's out there. The, the start line, so to speak, is quickly approaching. And some of you might be familiar with this, this wanting of a job. Maybe you're single. You're waiting for that spouse to come along. Maybe you're married and you're waiting for your spouse to change. <laughs> you know, maybe you're waiting for God to give you some kids. Whatever it is, you might be familiar with this. It might seem like God is wasting time, but I, I want to assure you that God's not. God is cultivating something in you. He is bringing something out of you that can only be brought out of this season of in-between. Some of us, we, we might not realize we're in a season of in-between. Right? We've, been, we've become kind of comfortable, and it's not a bad thing to become comfortable with kind of our station in life, but we don't know what God is, God's plans are. He's got bigger plans for us. Maybe he's going to call us out of that at some point. And I think that this was the case for Moses. You know, at one time, Moses had dreams of being a social pioneer. We saw that um, in an earlier chapter where, where Moses got fed up with the way that the Egyptians were treating the Israelites. His, his unbridled anger ended up killing an Egyptian. And then it just, the whole movement fell flat on its face. Moses lost credibility, disqualified himself. And so what he did, he settled in. He's like, if this isn't the way it's going to be, I'm going to settle into this quiet life here. And for 40 years, he lived a life of, of being anonymous. And in that time, God was doing something profound. God was producing the meekness that Moses lacked 40 years earlier. Who would have thought that 40 years of leading sheep stubborn, misguided, unintelligent sheep would have been just the kind of training Moses would need to lead the Israelites in the desert 40 years later. Right, so if you're in the season of in-between, you can trust that God isn't wasting time. He's making the best use of time. And today, we're going to see God pull Moses out of the season of in-between as Moses leads his sheep to Horeb, or the mountain of God. And, and this will become a very important mountain. Actually, we'll, we'll know it as Mount Sinai later on in the story. This will be the place where God meets with his people. But before God does that work, he needs to do a work in Moses' heart. He needs, God needs to reveal himself. Moses needs to meet God, the real God. And in a sense, the story of what we hear in, in, in um, Exodus 3 is Moses' conversion story. He meets God, and his life is never the same. Take a look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside. I need to stop just for a second. I want to stop because some of us, we've heard this story before, this burning bush, right? I heard this story as a kid in Sunday school. But here's what I don't want to happen this morning as we kind of work through this. I don't, you, don't want you to be desensitized to the craziness of what's going on here, right? Because this is, this is crazy, this is crazy stuff. And, and, and what God is doing here, sometimes he works this way. Sometimes he does something out of the ordinary, something, something that, that grabs our attention, something that's different. And this is exactly what he's trying to do with Moses. Okay, back to it. Sorry. I, I jumped ahead a little bit, I think. And the angel of the Lord appeared 
to him in the fire of, a, of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn, t- turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, this isn't any ordinary day for Moses, okay? To see a fire in the wilderness wouldn't have been that uncommon, right? Other shepherds could have left their campfire going and burns and eventually goes out or lightning strikes. It's, it's not completely uncommon for there to be fire out in the wilderness, but this fire, this bush was not like any other burning bush. It catches Moses' attention. And so Moses does what anybody would do who's been walking around with sheep for the last 40 years. He has a conversation with himself. Right? He says, I think I'm going to go check this out. So he goes over and he starts slowly approaching. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, Moses called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Look, again, there are times when God works in, in in bizarre ways. Times where God has orchestrated events or series of events to grab our attention, to, to make our ears perk up to what he has to say. Maybe you, you've lost your job or, or, or maybe, maybe worse, you've lost your family. God's trying to get your attention. Maybe you've got some sort of health issues going on and God's trying to, to get your attention. Or maybe you just have friends that keep on inviting you to church. God's trying to get your attention but whatever it looks like, however God's trying to get your attention, I just want to encourage you to, to not ignore it. Don't, don't dismiss it. It would have been so easy for Moses to avoid this burning bush, and thankfully he didn't because, because what God is going to do, he's going to reveal himself, and he's going to show his plan for God's people, and Moses is going to be a, a key part of it. Okay, so when the, Lord, uh, when the Lord saw Moses had turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take his sandals off your feet for the place on which you, which you are standing is holy ground. After calling Moses by name, God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. Right? This is a sign of reverence. Why would God ask this of Moses? Because right? the ground on which Moses is standing is holy. God is telling Moses something here. Before God introduces himself and says who I am, God shows Moses what he is. God is saying, I am holy. This is arguably the most important characteristic of God. No other attribute of God is more foundational or continuously expressed than his holiness. Sam Storms, an Acts 29 pastor down in Oklahoma City, says it like this. Holiness is not one attribute among many. It is not like grace or power or knowledge or wrath. Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of his divine holiness. See, holiness is the essence of God. Everything that comes from God is holy. His love is holy. His knowledge is holy. His grace is holy. Even his wrath is holy. Now, this, this word holy is, is a word that needs to be explained. I think it's been kind of claimed by churchy people, and I, I love churchy people, but sometimes they're wrong. There's a tendency for churchy people who haven't had a genuine encounter with God to reduce holiness as being synonymous of being morally good. So if you were to ask them, oh, what does it mean for God to be holy? They say, oh, it just means he, he always does what's right and what's good. 
And that's, that's not wrong, right? God always does what is good, right, and perfect. But to reduce holiness down to that is a grave error. There's so much more to God's holiness than just being morally good. And the word holy, it comes from the word kodes, a Hebrew word. It means apartness. It means separate, to be sacred, to, to be transcendent, or, or my favorite way to say it, to be completely other. There is nothing above him. There is nothing like him. See, we know very little, and God knows it all. Right? We can be in one place at one time. God can be everywhere throughout all creation. We are inconsistent with our temperament. God is always consistent, always gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. We're dependent on food, relationships. God needs nothing. We are limited in our power, and God possesses all power. See, God is completely other. He's completely unlike us. And there's no man-made category to put God in, right? We have a category for a, a bush. We have a category for fire. We have a category for talking. But we don't have a category for a talking burning bush that isn't consumed, right? There's no category for that. I think that's one of the reasons why God showed up in this way to Moses. He said, I'm not, I'm not like anything you've ever met or encountered before. The thing about God's holiness, the thing about God being holy, is that there's something beautifully appealing about it, same time simultaneously terrifying. It's, it's like fire, okay? Fire, if, if you've ever been outside sitting around a campfire, this fall has started already, so this is the time of the year to be around a bonfire with your friends, your neighbors sitting around, you're sitting at the campfire, you're watching the flames, and it seems like everything else just mutes around you. You just get sucked into it, Right? The flames pull you in, in a sense. But at the same time, you have to be cautious. Right? You can't actually go into it because you, you'll send your leg hair off or, or worse. Because fire is dangerous. Right? Have you ever been to a bonfire with kids around? Parents are on guard. Right? I, I try to take my family, uh, I, my wife and I have got a two-and-a-half-year-old son, and I tried to take him camping a couple weeks ago, and it was a terrible experience. But, but we had a bonfire that night. We, it was a terrible experience. We were supposed to be out there for a couple of days. We went out on a Thursday evening, and by 8 o'clock on Friday morning, we decided we were going home. <laughs> it was short-lived. But that night, Thursday night, we had a bonfire. And my two-and-a-half-year-old, he's, he's rambunctious would be a, a nice way to put it. And around this fire, man, I could have swore I was like, I could have won NBA Defensive Player of the Year trying to keep him away from the fire. Right, because fire is dangerous. Fire, while it's beautiful, he's drawn to it. He wants to go go at it. It's dangerous, and this is what God is like with His holiness. He's enthralling yet undeniably terrifying. R.C. Sproul explains it like this in his book, The Holiness of God. We tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There is a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time, we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. See, the reason for this, the reason why we have this um, back and forth, or, or it's, it's not all one or the other, is that everything unholy 
is in danger in the presence of holiness. Right here at the burning bush, Moses is in danger. Alec Motier, an Old Testament scholar, said, Holiness endangers the sinner because the holiness of the Lord is not a passive attribute, but an active force, embracing all that conforms to it and destroying all that offends it. See, this is why Moses has to stand back. This is why Moses, at the end of verse 6, is afraid to look at the bush. He's terrified. And this, this isn't a, an isolated event. We see this with the prophet Isaiah. When he sees, when he's confronted by the holiness of God, he says, woe is me, I am undone. Have you had this kind of encounter with God? I, I, not, I'm not talking like a burning bush. We see those all the time, right? Everywhere. No, we don't. I'm talking about an encounter where God has revealed his holiness to you, right? A time where you've been confronted by the complete otherness of God, a moment that's kind of sets you backing up. I'm going to fall into this. It sets you backing up because you know, you know that you're not fit to be in his presence. It's my belief that God continues to reveal his holiness even today. But I think there's a couple mistakes that we make when, we're in, in, when we encounter this holiness, we try to fit God into a box, right? We try to categorize God, but there's no way we can categorize something that is completely other. We may think it's too terrifying. God is too threatening that there's no way to be near him. And so we, we deem him as mean. He's distanced himself. Or another way that we get this wrong is we reduce his holiness. Or another way of saying it, we try to increase our self-perception of our holiness, so we, we convince ourselves that we're more like God than we are unlike God. We rehearse the good doings and charitable gestures in our head and prove that we're good people, right? This is the moralistic kind of version of holiness. And again, this reduces what it means for God to be holy. Thus, in a sense, we feel like we're entitled to be near God. Like it's not a threat for us to be in God's presence. Like those something different is supposed to happen here when we're confronted by the holiness of God. What's meant to happen when you see God as holy, when you see him as completely others, is there's this internal self-evaluation that happens where you honestly examine yourself and what you'll find is that you're not in the same ball, ballpark. What you'll always find when you come face to face with the God of the Bible is that you're in no position to be in his presence. See, most people read this passage and they wonder, well, why isn't, why isn't the bush being consumed? But I think a better question in light of God's holiness is, why isn't Moses consumed? How is it that, that sinful Moses can be here, right? Moses is a murderer, right? He's an exile. He's a traitor. How is Moses not just done away with right there on the spot? And that the answer to that question is here in verse 2. And you probably read past I know I did the first time I read through this. Moses doesn't get consumed because the angel of the Lord was there with him. Okay, not an angel, not Michael, not Gabriel, the angel of the Lord. This angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus is here in the burning bush. And what's he doing? 
He's mediating between a holy God and a sinful man. See, the only way for us to be in God's presence as sinful, sinful people is to have a mediator. Listen to this. You were, you were made to be in God's presence. You were made to experience glory. You were never meant to be distanced from God, but sin has ruined us from that privilege. We're no longer able to be in God's presence on our own. We need a mediator, and that mediator is none other than Jesus. Even here in Exodus 3, right? Your mind is blowing. See, the pre-incarnate Jesus shows up in the burning bush, and instead of Moses being destroyed, God, God speaks to Moses and introduces himself in verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God right here, what he's doing, he's showing Moses. He's telling him, hey, I remember all your ancestors from way back. I remember all the promises that I've made to them, and right now I am being faithful to those things. He's saying, I haven't forgot about my promises to you. I haven't forgot about my people. And God continues to show Moses what he's like. And and in one word, I would say he's compassionate. Right? These two attributes paired with the holiness of God are, are things that we can be confident in. That God is faithful to his people and his compassion compels him to take action on their behalf. See, last week in chapter 2, our passage ended with God saying that he, he heard the groaning of his enslaved people. He remembered, how, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw the people of Israel that he knew. Right? And this isn't just an intellectual knowledge, not, not just an, an awareness of something. God actually knew. He felt it deep in him. He felt the agony of each crack against the back of the Israelites. He felt the heartache of the mothers who lost their sons. Each time there was injustice, I just imagine God cringing to brace himself for the pain. This compassion that was highlighted at the end of chapter two is brought up again in verse seven, but now God is going to tell Moses what he's going to do about it. His compassion and his faithfulness motivates him to take action. Take a look at verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So God right here in verses seven to nine is laying out his plan, motivated by his faithfulness and compassion. God is going to deliver his people from the cruelty of Israel or from cruelty of Egypt and lead them into a new land, an abundant land, a good land, a land where they wouldn't feel the oppression anymore, a land where they wouldn't be stretched thin This is the land that God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 15. See, God is saying that I'm going to deliver my people and I'm finally going to bring them home. And I bet Moses is sitting here. If I were Moses, I'd be getting fired up. This is a great speech, you know, great motivational speech almost. Moses get fired up. This is great news. 
I'm so excited for my people. How are you going to do it, God? God looks through you. Huh? Verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God lays out this big redemption plan that Israel has been waiting for for hundreds of years at this point. And Moses is going to be a key player in this. Now, I, I would imagine this isn't what Moses wants to hear. And we'll kind of see this play out over the next week or so. He doesn't feel like he's the guy for the job. Right? He's, he's probably thinking, I'm, al- I'm already out of Egypt. I have no business going back to Egypt. In fact, the last time that Moses was in Egypt, Pharaoh wanted him dead. And the Israelites had no respect for him. He's not the right guy. He kind of drags his feet a little bit. This is what he says. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses is saying, I am not the guy for the job. I'm underqualified. I'm out of my prime. He's, he's 80 years old at this point. No offense to anybody up in that age bracket. He's out of his prime. Moses is probably thinking, I, I tried to do something like this 40 years ago, but I fell flat on my face. It didn't work out. Now, the funny part of this is, is that Moses, Moses isn't wrong. He is underqualified. He is out of his prime. But God doesn't respond, oh, no, Moses, you're totally wrong. You're the right guy for the job, I promise. And everybody thinks the best of you. That's not the case. God doesn't do anything to boost his self-esteem. Look what God says here. Look at verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Do you see what God is saying here? The angel of the Lord, the one that's in the bush mediating between God and Moses, will be with him as he is sent out on God's mission to redeem God's people. If you're an MC leader, if you're a parent, if you're a disciple maker of any time, any kind, these words ought to be incredibly comforting to you, right? Because what God lays before us is not based upon us. We can't, we can't successfully parent on our own. We can't effectively lead a missional community on mission and deeper into the gospel on our own. It's not based upon our abilities. It's based upon God's ability to work through unqualified people as they commune with God. That's what's going on here with Moses. God says, hey, hey, Moses, it doesn't matter what you have going on. What matters is that I am with you. See, God tells Moses, you'll know that I'm with you when these things happen. I'll bring you out of your people out of Egypt, and you'll serve God on this mountain. Now, at this point, what Moses knows is going on, God is going to deliver his people, bring them out of Egypt into a new land. This kind of opens up the reality of what's going on here with God's plan. God's plan of redemption is bigger than just getting his people out of Egypt and into abundant land. 
See, God says, I will pull you out of Egypt so that you will serve me on this mountain. And some translations say, worship me on this mountain. But I think a more accurate translation that encapsulates the both of these is that you will be fully devoted to me here. See, God's plan for redemption is to reclaim his people so they would joyfully and wholeheartedly serve and worship him on the very ground that Moses is standing on. God would make for himself a holy people, a people who are wholly devoted to him, a people set apart, a people to show the world what God is like. See, this plan is so much bigger than just getting out of Egypt. God is making a people to show the world what God is like. See, I think, I think a little bit of this challenges our modern mainstream evangelicalism. Right? Many of us might think that God saves us so that we go to church on Sunday mornings, right? and then someday we'll get to heaven. Right? Just, just this little sliver of our lives. But that's not what it looks like to be wholly devoted to God. There's, there's something much bigger going on here. The gospel uh, is so much bigger. Than that. Jesus didn't die just so you could go to heaven and, and come on Sunday mornings. Jesus died so your entire life would be devoted to him. Your home life, your work life, your hobbies, your finances, everything about you would be devoted to God. Just consider, it's coming up in some, the, the upcoming chapters, but just consider for a moment the Ten Commandments. See, God didn't just give the, Egyptian, or the Israelites the Ten Commandments for Sunday mornings or Saturday mornings at that time. He didn't just say, hey, these 10 things, do them from 9.30 to 11.30 on Sunday mornings and you'll be great. God gave these commandments to his people to, to make them a distinct people so that their whole lives would be wholly devoted to God. Every moment of every day through the power of the Holy Spirit ought to be done in devotion to God. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You see, this is the scope of God's redemption. This is why God is sending Moses to redeem his people, to be his, and that they would live wholly devoted to him. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and, and they are to ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said, I am who I am. Right? This is mic drop. Who are you? I am who I am. <laughs> what? What does that mean? <laughs> I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. The I am or I am has sent me to you. And in Hebrew culture, someone's name often signifies their character or their ability or their mission. For example, if we look at the patriarchs, Abraham was given the name Abraham because it means father of many, right? God's promise to Abraham was that I'll make you a father of many. I'll make your descendants outnumber the stars. Or there's Isaac, who is one of Abraham's descendants, who is given the name Isaac, which means laughter. Because when God told Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a kid in their 90s, Abraham was pushing 100, they laughed. 
Right? These names mean something in Hebrew culture. So they ask, what is your name, God? And, Mo- and God gives Moses his name. He says, when you go to the people, tell them, I am. That's his name. I am sent you. Right? And he associates himself as the Lord of their fathers. And in the Hebrew, this word, I am, is Yahweh. Y-H-W-A-H. Y-H-W-H. It's hard to spell. There's no vowels. Yahweh. And this is the most common and it's the most important name that we have for God. It's used 6,828 times in the Old Testament, but in the English, it never gets translated as Yahweh. Joel told us about it. He took part of my sermon here. It gets translated as the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Right? So whenever you see that pop up in your Bible, that is God's name, Yahweh. And this, this word Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb to be. Moses asked God for his name. He says, I am being. Or to put it in all the tenses, I have been, I am being, and I will be. God is being. He's saying, I have no beginning, I have no ending. God is the uncreated creator. I always was, and I always will be. This is what he's saying to Moses. See, we don't have a category for this. Everything else in, in this world has a beginning and it has an end, right? Except for the McDonald's fry that's been stuck between my seat and the center console of my car. That thing will be here forever. God is showing that he's other. He's, he's the uncreated creator. He is being. And one of the most important things that God is showing Moses right now is that he is dependent on no one but himself. See, we depend upon food. For, we depend upon sustenance, water, for, for, to live and thrive physically. We depend upon love and affirmation to thrive relationally and emotionally. We depend upon the Holy Spirit to grow spiritually. See, but God is sufficient in himself. God has all that he needs within himself, within the Trinity. And for all that he wills and all that he displays, it's able to do in God through himself. See, this is why when God comes, the bush isn't consumed. God is saying, hey, I'm able to continue burning this bush in myself. It doesn't need any sort of fuel to keep burning. And so it is with God's plan of redemption. God's plan, listen, God's plan is completely dependent upon him. Then in verses 15 through 17, God tells Moses what he needs to tell the Israelites in regards to their big plans or his big plans of redemption. Moses is going to tell them about God's faithfulness and his compassion and that God will deliver them from the horrific and cyclical oppression of Israel or Egypt. I'm sorry, this is a lot of confusing words. The cyclical horrific oppression of Egypt. And then in verses 18 through 20, God has a little aside with Moses. He pulls Moses aside and says, hey, they're going to listen to you eventually, and they'll follow you, but it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Pharaoh is going to resist, and ultimately he'll be forced to give you up. God will use his mighty hand to intervene. See, but in the end, there will be victory. God will prevail, and Israel will triumph. 
See, that's what verses 20 through 22 are all about. Not only will God deliver them from Egypt, but they will plunder the Egyptians. God will work so thoroughly on behalf of Israel that they will walk away rich. See, there's a lot going on here in chapter 3. And I want you to see how, I hope you can see how the narrative of the Exodus story is unfolding. See, the plot has been laid out for us. The stage has been set. God calls Moses and reveals him to himself, right? He gives Moses his name, tells him what he's like. God tells Moses his plan, what he's going to do, how he's going to work mightily to redeem his people from slavery and give them victory. And God says, Moses, I'm going to use you. God is going to work through an unqualified man to do this great work. See, this, is, this story is epic. We'll see it even more and more as we keep going. This story is huge. But this story is not the best story. It's a prequel. It's a foreshadowing. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a foreshadowing of a greater story that will come, one that will be remembered forever. Back in verse 15, when Yahweh introduces himself, he says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. See, God, God will be remembered for all generations in Israel, for sure. They'll have celebrations and festivals to remind themselves of the work that God has done to bring them out of slavery. But what God does in Exodus will be a small feat in comparison to what he will do to deliver his people totally and completely from the slavery of sin and death. Right? This, what God will do, will be remembered for all generations, not only in Israel, but across the world. See, this time, God would reveal himself. He would introduce himself once again. The angel of the Lord that was in the burning bush would one day put on flesh, flesh and be among God's people. This God man would perfectly embody everything that God was like. Colossians 1.15 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. That he would perfectly demonstrate God's faithfulness, God's compassion, and God's holiness. And this God man would have a name that means something as well. His name would be Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. It would be through this man that God would ultimately deliver his people. And in the most beautiful display of God's faithfulness and compassion, Jesus would voluntarily be put up on a tree. By sending Jesus to the cross, God is saying, I'm going to redeem my people once again. This time, uh, I'm the one who's going to do it. Right? There's no one else fit to do what I'm about to do, to bring you out of sin and death. It was a plan so great that it required God himself to execute it. So Jesus comes to earth, lives a perfect life, which is wholly devoted to God. A life that we couldn't live, and then Jesus endures the cross, pain for sin, because we couldn't do it. And then by God's power, more epic than any of the plagues that would come, Jesus is raised from the dead, conquering what we could not conquer. And Jesus plunders death. And he offers us the riches of heaven as we put our trust in him. 
You see, this, this is the greater Exodus story. A story where God meets us in our oppression and delivers us from the power of sin, Satan, and death. Where the great oppressors that plague this world are stripped of all of their power so that we can meet God and be in his presence through the only mediator, Jesus Christ our Lord. If, if you're longing to be set free from sin or whatever oppresses you, if you desire to be made victorious over sin and death, Jesus is ready to deliver you. All that is required of you is to trust in him. And for those of you who have already experienced the freedom that God offers us through Christ, never forget the glorious work that Christ has done, right? We teach it to the next generation and the generation after that. Never forget what God has done. Rejoice in it, celebrate it, and know this, that God, God is calling you, not just out of sin and death, that is true, but God is also calling you to be on mission with him, to go where he sends you. Just like Moses, we are, are unqualified men and women, right, to be ambassadors for God. We don't, we don't have that sort of capability in our own self. But God is calling Christians to join him on mission, the mission of redeeming his people. A mission that we're unqualified to do in our own strength, but with the help of the Spirit, we are able to do. He's calling us to lead others to know what God is like. And to let them know what God has done to deliver them. See, as Christians, we've been pulled out of slavery. We've been set out with good news. So that as the power of God is made manifest in the person and work of Jesus, and as the people meet Jesus, then and only then will they be free to live a life wholly devoted to God. And as you go and do so, as you are sent out of here this morning, know that Jesus goes with you. He is the one who gives you the words to speak. He is the one who will work through you for his purposes. This is such a great promise. Today we're about to take the Lord's Supper. This is just another reminder, another means of grace in which we experience Jesus being with us here. We're reminded that Jesus is here among his people working for our good and for the good of our cities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you reveal yourself. Even more so, we thank you for a mediator that we have in Christ. The one who acts on our behalf, who preserves us from being destroyed in, in light of your holiness we thank you for the way that he works to bring us out of oppression, out of slavery, out of sin and death. Would you help us to live a life wholly devoted to you, a life that you intended for us to live, showing the world what you are like. We ask for your help. We ask that Jesus would be with us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.